and like you know the actual art being generated by ai just seems to me like the sort of overcomplicated uh imagery from a dream you can't really remember very well and if you could sit down and remember it it would be weightless and pointless i find it a little bit depressing hip-hop hustle podcast man you heard it here first he's not playing no aaron's not playing no fucking game You got your ear to the streets, man. Much love to all the people down under. And make sure y'all follow the Hip Hop Hustle podcast, man, because they're giving y'all nothing but the real shit. But yeah, man, appreciate the intro, bro. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's kick it off. Shout out to the whole Hip Hop Hustle podcast. What's up with it? It's official. For the first time ever, we have Hip Hop Hustle podcast merch. From hoodies to T-shirts to hats and even slides, Go to the hiphophustlepodcast.com to get yours. All right. There we go. Welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle Podcast. I'm extremely excited about my next guest. Uh, he doesn't really know why he's on the show, to be honest, uh, when it's called the Hip Hop Hustle. But I'm uh, a big fan. I started following your work, my friend. Uh, Daniel Maidman, um, you'll see him. He's done some really cool stuff. You've got the Manu drawings. You've got books out. You've been. You've got your own uh, works in museums and in in places where they store art. You've been published on the Huffington Post. Like when we talk about art, you've got a list of accomplishments that is pretty amazing. I've always interested to know how you view the things that you've achieved throughout your career thus far. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I uh, when I started out uh, in a serious way with art, I made a list of uh, career goals and um, you know they all seemed impossible and for a long time they were and one by one I was able to reach them and uh, I think as in all fields like the the glamour disappears once you're inside so every once in a while I have to go back to my list and remind myself that I got what I wanted Um, but the most satisfying uh, part it turned out was just being able to make the work and everything else is a sort of a a vessel to allow it, uh, allow, allow the work to reach its audience and allow the world to, uh, help support me enough that I can continue making the work. Uh, so I'm very, very pleased with, uh, with all of those things. But, um, as I got them, they, uh, they, they, they became less pivotal to my experience of, uh, of what I wanted. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that as you achieve them, you started to, the shine almost started to disappear away from them? I don't know. I really do think that uh, that the glamour disappears inside of anything. I used to. Um, I started out in film, and uh, you know, film looks super glamorous from the outside, and from the inside, uh, there's a lot of machinery, a lot of dynamics uh, between people, uh, a lot of work just to make a very complicated system function, and uh, and you know, it's not all twinkly, uh, twinkly light and uh, golden glow the way it seems from the outside. Uh, and the type of satisfaction you get from it is very different. And I think it's that way for art as well. It's, um, it's, uh, uh, it's, I mean, I think, I think that the, that glamour itself implies a certain distance from the thing that is glamorized. And once you get close enough, the glamour dissipates and you find out whether the substance of it really appeals to you. Uh, so that substance did appeal to me. Uh, it's just that I had a less uh, sort of totemic fixation on the outward markers of success as I was able to achieve them. So there there are certain types of emotional satisfaction that I think you don't ever get 
from uh, from a career working out, but you get uh, a different satisfaction that's invisible until uh, until you reach it. Do you think artists would be happier if they stopped focusing on those markers of success and purely focused on the art? Obviously, assuming that they could live and support themselves effectively. Yes, I think that they would. Um, you know, okay, so for instance, I really, one of the things that I didn't get was um, was being integrated into the Chelsea art culture. Uh, that is an art scene that uh, is simply not interested in the kind of work that I do. And I really wanted it for a long time. And I knew some of the people who were gatekeepers in that sector. And uh, it's it just never was going to happen. Uh, and it bothered me for a long time until I sort of emotionally accepted that the art world has many parts and that I was welcomed with open arms in other parts that I didn't know existed when it started. So I found my community and they found me and I've got my people. I have um, collectors who very much appreciate what I do. And, um, and I've been able to do uh, everything else uh, rooting around Chelsea. Like I'll never get that, but I'll get everything else. And I think that it really bothered me for a long time. And if I'd been able to let it go earlier, I wouldn't have wasted that energy on it. And to the extent that any artist starting out can quickly react to uh, to the things that they're categorically not going to get and appreciate the things they are going to get. And on the whole, uh, once they've got the basic necessities taken care of, concentrate simply on making the work and on doing the very everyday work of promoting it into the world without uh, a sort of a, a fandom-oriented like emotional connection to that i think it would make uh, it would make a lot of artists much happier if they could work that way well the way you speak it it sounds like the level of maturity needed to be there is at such a like in, in high level it, it would be so impressive for a young person to be able to reach that disconnection between hey this is my art it's also a reflection of who i am and then when people are not supportive or people who are not in your corner, how to separate the criticism and even separate the praise from who you actually are internally. Yes. And I think, um, I think that it's, it's very difficult. And I, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of art writing. And I, uh, among, along with the art criticism, I wrote a lot of articles that were basically addressed to me about the mindset uh, that I wanted, that I thought would be useful to have, and that I wanted to have. So I, I taught myself by writing, uh, writing the, these ideas into into being, and um, and uh, oh, we're talking about young. Oh, yeah, it's tough when you're really young to let go of that stuff. Um, and the quicker you can learn, the better. And you'll wind up getting most of that stuff anyway. And you'll find out that it. Um, I mean, if you persist. This is very much a game of persisting. Uh, and that requires judgment as well, because maybe you're not very good at it. And maybe there's something else you'd be better at that you'd be happier in. I was not very good at film. Uh, I get good at things slowly. And film rewards people who get good at things quickly. And I was not good at film community politics. So, And it took me a long time to accept that. And that was time that I could have been doing something else. I don't regret it, but, um, but that was a lot of time. And uh, so there's a whole chain of uh, decisions that you have to make along your way to an art career. But having that career does require uh, persistence and, um, 
and the persistence does uh, does involve developing a thick enough skin to detach uh, to detach both criticism and praise from uh, from um, your emotional self perception. And I know that with artists, their work is themselves. And uh, and yeah, you're going to encounter a lot of people who are like, I reject the work and I reject you. Um, but it's okay because you'll also find your people, and those um, and those are the people whose support will blow you up when you need it. Uh, but mostly what you want to do as a young artist is forge a stronger connection to the work itself. Like as a young artist, you have years and years of uh, practice required to get good enough that your technique supports your vision. And you have to maintain the vision in the face of all that technique because you can become so oriented towards technique that you forget why you're doing it in the first place. And those are all internal challenges that have nothing to do with career. They have to do with your interface with the art itself. And that is absolutely the most fundamental thing. And so keeping that front and center in your practice, I think, and not obsessing too much about the external markers uh, is uh, a good path forward uh, for a beginning artist. Yeah, I think, you know, as you speak, I'm like, I'm thinking about my own art and, and how I've done art through school. I have never really thought I was a good artist. And as I've gotten older, I've started to think that maybe the art I was trying to make was not the art that I was feeling and that I've, for whatever reason, was not separate. I was not intuitive enough to actually tap into something that was within myself. I was trying to create something that was so far away, objectively beautiful as opposed to subjectively beautiful. And I don't know, I think it's this weird place of when I think about it, everyone has artistic expression and it's about finding your version of that, that fits you the most that you enjoy making, but also you can look back and go like, yeah, that is an accurate representation of who I am. Were you able to work your way through uh, that process until you found the art that you that you were meant to be making? Well, I found that performance is my big thing. I like being on stage. I like public speaking. It's weird. I have a podcast, so I like communicating with people. But I've I started a journey this year of writing. I write a thought a day every day for the full year. That was like my New Year's resolution, which I never keep, except somehow I'm keeping this one. And mm -hmm. I started thinking that next year maybe I'll start drawing or painting or find that like, that physical expression on canvas to see what I could kind of get out of myself. Because, um, yeah, because I, I, when I went to New York and I saw pieces, I was like, I never thought all any of this was possible. It is literally whatever you can come up with. Everyone has their own style. That's marvelous. Well, I hope that it's a great year for you doing that. Um, I'll, and I'll look forward to see. Are you going to be posting it? I don't. This comes up against another thing. I also think that a beginning artist should take time to not show work to people. Uh, this used to be a lot easier before social media and before this idea that you had to be constantly posting in order to demonstrate that you were making things. Your project sounds like something that maybe you want to keep it to yourself for a while. Um, yeah. If you're if you're posting it, I will be thrilled to see it. But I'm not going to encourage you to post it before before you've had time alone with the work. Time alone with the work is is fundamental. I might just have to send it to you privately. Okay, I'd love to see it. Because <laughs> my brother started painting recently. Actually, he went traveling for twelve months. So my mm -hmm. youngest brother, and he found he just started drawing in his notepad, 
and now he started to paint and do abstract works and now he started to look at clay figures and that's the path he wants to go down and I'm like that is awesome like I've always thought uh that he, he had some artistry in him it's again it's hard to know what it is until you start doing it but he genuinely really enjoys it and and I mean so where I am filming there's an attic above me that's where my brother goes and has all paints in there and canvases so um yeah I think seeing part of him do that has inspired me as well to be like if he can then so can I that's fantastic well I'm very happy for him as well that's a very creative family but are, are your parents artists no we were no. always like the this so it's really weird I was reflecting on this we were always taught like the the base you know Markers of success, English, mm-hmm. maths, science, those types of things, very sporty family. But mm-hmm. I think I, I did drama in high school. That kind of helped my creativity. But outside of that, we didn't really do extracurricular creativity things. It was mostly just athletics and, and academics, which mm-hmm. were pushed. I was awful at instruments. Uh, that was just something I never picked up. But uh-huh. I think as I'm getting older, and as my brothers are getting older, we're discovering these things about ourselves. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, um, I had uh, my, my dad is a professor and my uh, mom was an executive uh, while we were little uh, to help support the family. But uh, now that she's been able to retire, she's gone back to what she was doing when, uh, when we were little, which was um, an artist. Uh, so I have always had support in both the arts and academics. And uh and, you know, my parents were like, whatever you want to do, we'll support you. So I was very fortunate that way. Um, and we had a lot of art and uh, literature around the house. How do they view what you've managed to accomplish? I think they're, I, well, I mean, I know they're proud of me. And I think they are relieved that I got some of the things that I wanted. Because uh, it um, because I was it was clear that I wasn't going to be happy unless I got to live a life more or less similar to the life that I'm leading. Um, and they would not have wanted me to be unhappy. So I think they're, it, uh, it was a huge relief to them that, uh, that something worked out. Uh, and, you know, film was, a, film was a disaster. And I really wanted that from when I was a teenager. Um, and I only, I only had the sense to move on from it in my 30s. Um, and I think that that was probably really rough for them, seeing me struggling like that and, uh, and not getting where I wanted to go. But... Um, I've always had a lot of my life that wasn't the core thing that I was doing. So I enjoyed a lot of other things during that period. And my average happiness level is naturally pretty high. Um, so that's far afield from the question, but I think they're really happy for me. And, uh, you know, they get a kick out of uh, me being published in different places and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting that it took you so long to realize the film wasn't mm-hmm. the thing for you i have a irrationally high self-confidence uh which is really good for persisting at, at getting good at things but it's really bad for uh realizing when you're off track uh so it takes me a long time to recognize mistakes and uh you know when you're when you decide when you're 13 that you want to make movies you're not at that time the technology for filmmaking was inaccessible enough that there was no solid evidence one way or another until I was in my 20s whether or not I was going to be any good at it. And 
then once I moved to Los Angeles and I encountered the uh, sort of social web of the film world and realized that I couldn't navigate it and I didn't have the temperament to work my way up through it um, and was shooting shorts that were really, they had certain elements that worked, but many more elements that did not work. Like they're very visual, uh, but um, the writing wasn't great. And I was doing the writing. Um, it took me a lot of years to get good at writing. And I got good at writing long after I had left film. Um, so I was not coordinating all of those elements into something that worked. But, you know, it was promising. And um, so it was difficult when you had a strong bias in favor of thinking you're awesome to discern that it's really not happening. Um, let me think. Oh, you know, I was 30 exactly when I got over it. So I've had like a long time since then to do other things. Uh, I think it was worth it. I had a really good time. I mean, it was frustrating, uh, but I met a lot of amazing people and I did a lot of work that I liked. And I played with a lot of ideas that have contributed in my film and writing or my uh, uh, art and writing since then. So, yeah, it was good. For anyone wondering about the uh, social dynamics of the film industry, yeah. Would you be able to describe it of what it was like when you experienced it? I was encountering the very outer edges of it. Uh, so I bumped into a lot of crew people and I am very, very bad at working for anyone apart from myself. I have never been able to hold down an office job. And there was, I, there were opportunities to start uh, at the PA level, um, or, you know, as some kind of a grip. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just going to go ahead and direct things. And that's stupid. <laughs> um, I had not gone to, uh, one of the film schools that gives you entree. I would run into actors, uh, some of whom were very kind, uh, who were not like movie stars, but recognizable. Um, and, uh, but the entire, the substance of how people were relating to each other remained mysterious to me. Uh, and it was, I only realized that it was mysterious once I moved to New York and I got to know uh, the art scene. And like the art world is not that big. I don't know what, how many people are actively involved in the, you know, multifaceted art world in New York relative to the film world in Los Angeles. I think it's a smaller number of people. But I didn't find it difficult to figure out who was connected with whom and in what ways and to wind up in the right room to be talking to the right person. And also, uh, having gone through this nightmare of like that, the one that trying to socialize in film was very unpleasant um, because I don't like walking into a room wanting something from people. I want to enjoy people. I don't want to use people uh, as an instrument to get something that I want. I found it very uncomfortable. And so having gone through that uh, with film, when I was starting with art, that, you know, that was a, also happened to some extent, but less so. And I was able to cordon it off and reduce it. And I was able to figure out who my friends were and to interact with them as friends and not as people seeking uh, an advantage from one another. And I, I, and this was not the goal, but by simply uh, seeking to participate and to have a good time with people, I wound up getting 
much farther than I think I would have uh, if I had kept on asking for things. Um, and film people are, I think, more insular. And I think they defend their territory. The ones that I knew defended their territory much harder than the art people that I wound up hanging out with. My art community is a very open community. Like, you know, if you show up and you're dedicated to your work and you're of goodwill, you'll find a place. Uh, and that's that's not the that's not the um, uh, that's not that's I'm in I'm in much more of a figurative classical scene, but we absorb new people when they come by. We're happy to have new people. Um, I think film is quite defensive. I think the uh, Chelsea sector of the art world is quite defensive. Although who knows, I didn't hang out with them for very long because they didn't like my work. And you kind of have to like each other's work. Um, so mapping the art world, including the parts of it that I didn't get into, was relatively easy. Mapping the film world was very, very difficult. The interior connections were uh, obscure. And we're talking about like the late 90s and the early 2000s. I don't know how it is now because there's just an army of online people who spend all their time figuring this stuff out. I think that if you were a dedicated uh, pattern interpreter now, you could work your way through it and figure out all of the internal connections without being an insider. Um, but even that, uh, that level of analytic um, insight uh, eluded me in my 20s. So uh, it remained um, enigmatic. Well, to be honest, I don't think that sounds particularly fun to spend my time mapping it all out in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think right? anyone should should enter a career and start mapping anything out. I think you're right. I We've all been in conversations where you feel like the other person's trying to get something from you. It yeah. just feels a lack of emotion, a lack of connection, and it just feels off. And I think uh -huh. being in an industry where you feel that would just be awful it would yeah. just drive you crazy for for the rest of your life i think i think there are a lot of crazy people in los angeles i'm hesitating to generalize from my experience to uh an overall um take on the scene because first of all my uh my experience is now a couple decades out of date uh and second of all um maybe i was just an asshole i mean it could have just been me i don't think it was i think everyone was horrible uh, in that way, because everybody has such a such a craving like film film of all of the arts has so much potential reward and so much apparent glamour that it attracts swarms of people who have an almost addictive uh, craving for rewards inside of that field. And I think that breeds that kind of behavior. Um, so that part of it is very unhappy. Um, but I couldn't say if, if that was everyone else's experience. That was my experience. I didn't like it about myself. Uh, and so when I, uh, when I eventually got over my passion for the internal art-making part of it, I was incredibly happy to leave behind the ambition part of it. Well, I see the same in music. I think yeah. the, the more corporate things become the more dog-eat-dog -dog world it becomes and the desire to leapfrog the next artist becomes more prevalent. I mean, I've been fortunate to speak to a lot of artists 
and everyone believes they're the best, but everyone believes that they deserve more. And it's Ooh. interesting to 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 talk to a lot of people who believe they deserve more because there is only so much that each of us really deserves and the rest is earned from right. from work that you do. Um so it's just interesting to see the mindset and I think a lot of it is told like you have to have this mindset because if you don't well then you're not going to succeed and I am starting to think that potentially being in reality with yourself is the true mindset you should have because it allows you to make decisions and make art that is true as opposed to what you think people want to hear. Yeah. In terms of that outward stuff, I have um taken a position uh of not really trying I've trying not to want specific things all that much because in my experience if you if you want something specific, the odds are good you won't get it. But if you remain open to good things happening, odds are good they'll happen. Uh, and what happens will be a surprise to you, but most of the time it will be satisfying. You can have like very general career goals and, uh, and then, you know, be open to the path that, uh, that your actual career goes, having a high degree of surprise and variability. Um, and if you're not fixated on specific individual, uh, you know, cookies and treats, uh, you'll just be delighted by what happens. I have been, I've, I've been delighted by all the things that have happened, uh, and most of them were not things that I planned or or wanted in advance. I think that's such a good mindset to have. It's like you remove the the headlights and you start to see the whole view, and you start no. to see, oh, perhaps there is something else out there that catches my eye more than the thing I thought. I wanted, even though I'm getting closer to that, you're like, oh, I'm distracted by something else I couldn't even perceive at the time. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people fall into that trap of, I said I'm going to do it, so that's the only thing I'm going to do, and I'm going to destroy the other potentials just because I'm stubborn and I won't bend my will in order to see a better opportunity. Yeah. things want the, if, you, if you have work to offer, the world will find some form of appreciation to offer back. Uh, and you just have to be open to it. And uh, I, you know, I can't say yes to everything, but I say yes to as much as I can uh, because it's all exciting. Uh, and if I, if I'm getting to do my work, then uh, the, the form it takes in the context of some particular side quest is just, you know, it's great. Can I ask you something that I have pondered about since seeing your art is why the human form i think everyone has an idea of of what it could be but i'm interested in yours of what is it that inspires you to continually draw it in different shapes and manifestations in different people okay um first of all it's doing it well uh is very challenging uh and so it's uh it's a it's a, it's just a great challenge when you're starting and you're like if i can do this uh then i'm really doing something uh very exciting um but also i think that the way i see human beings uh is the sort of physically we're the most graceful machines that i'm aware of in the universe and also there's a soul inside of us and so if you look hard enough uh, the machine becomes transparent and uh, and looking at it, you look through it uh, towards the inwardness of the person. 
and the themes that are that communicate with us and that are of interest to us are for the most part themes having to do with the human experience and the human experience is embodied in human beings um and i don't have uh i've had to train myself very hard to have a sense of narrative um but i have a strong sense of form so my drawings don't have a whole lot of narrative content they have a lot of um forms in them but those forms do lead inward uh and so you have challenge upon challenge of drawing the figure as a physical object and then learning to draw the figure as a set of mechanical dynamics and beyond that capturing mood and personality and soul and i find that endlessly rewarding and it's uh it you never see the same thing twice uh you know you could look at my work and be like well it's all figures but to me it, it, each one is its own world uh with its own unique characteristics and um and fascinations and uh and so i don't get bored with it i just i i want to draw figures all the time so i guess that's an answer yeah well it's definitely an answer <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's it's interesting cuz cuz when i'm looking at it and when i look through the the people that you draw and and when you're going through it it's like in a way my mind feels the backstory of like mm-hmm. what their life could be because there is this one piece and i was i think looking at it before and it the textures of the skin is also impeccable it feels like if i could brush my hand across it it would feel like a normal person would feel but there is one where it's just a hand on i think a hip and the indentation and and I'm all of a sudden being like I wonder what she's gone through she's mm-hmm. got a fuller figure and I'm and I'm just and it's just I think humans have this weird thing and maybe it's just because I enjoy your art that I'm trying to fill in the story of what this person's life is actually like I'm trying to understand them in order to get a bigger picture of that one small snapshot I love that thank you yeah I do think that we naturally uh we have empathy. We assume that um, that the people we look at have their own story, and uh, and when the and when the artwork doesn't provide it, we'll fill it in. Uh, and I want I want my people to have uh, to bring history and bring personality to the drawing, um, and then uh, and then allow the viewer to complete the experience the way that you're describing. I'm really glad that it strikes you that way. Because I've all, I've I've wondered how do you choose the people and the figures that you're you're going to draw or or attempt to to show in their shape? Well, let's see. the The drawings that you're looking at are a mix of drawings from life and drawings from photo reference. Um, so drawings from life tend to be either models that I know from life drawing workshops in New York or traveling models who are coming through New York and have gotten in touch with me and, um, and uh, you know, asked uh, if I'd be interested in working together, which I'll generally um, say yes to if I can. And then uh, photo reference tends to be, you know, uh, models that I've bumped into on Instagram. And the ones that I draw a lot are ones who have some element of 
their sense of pose in relation to the structure of their body or the types of um, photography that they wind up participating in uh, that challenges me and speaks to me and is often something new that I haven't thought of before and that I feel sympathetic with. And, um, and so I'll keep working with them. Uh, in terms of life drawing, there's a combination of that and also um, us getting along well conversationally. Because, um, you know, I talk the whole time that I'm drawing. I have uh, the talking part of my brain is completely disconnected from the drawing part. So I'm chatting with models the whole time I'm in the studio. So it has to be somebody that I can talk with for hours and hours and hours. Um, so, you know, the models that I work with in person are friends of mine uh, in the end. And, um, and so that's a combination of like the artistic inspiration, but also having a lot to talk about. Um, and I've had a lot of really good collaborations with models over the years that have lasted for a very long time. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much how that works. As you said, I talk and I draw at the same time. I'm like, I can't imagine doing that because I'm just like, okay, stop talking to me. I need to focus. I'm trying to do something hard <laughs> right. and you're just like, you know, going about your thing and having a conversation. I think that would be fun to be able mm-hmm. to do, to to disconnect. It's like, it's a weird magic trick in a way of you being mm-hmm. able to have a conversation and and do your art at the same time. I love it. Uh, it's It's so much fun. Um, and, you know, in life drawing workshops uh, where you're quiet because it's a group of people and everyone's drawing, uh, you know, I get a lot of thinking time because that verbal part of my brain is still not engaged. Uh, so I, I have interesting thoughts uh, while I'm drawing, and I love that as well, although I, don't, I can't get to uh, life drawing workshops as much anymore because my studio is still in Brooklyn, but I moved upstate and I'm down here a couple days a week. So I go back and forth, and most of my drawing sessions are private at this point. So uh, I haven't had that kind of extended thinking time during life drawing in a long time. Well, maybe it's time to go back and, and give yourself a new experience again. Yeah, that would be nice. Switching the way you're doing things uh, is always great. Yeah. Because yeah. I also wanted to ask you about the an unknown man of the modern age. Because uh-huh. I, I found the title interesting in of itself and mm-hmm. then also the drawings that you had were oh those are paintings oh paintings see yeah I, to me i'm like i can't tell the difference all i knew was that i was drawn to it um oh. but i was uh, but yeah i was interested and and then there's this i think there are two figures a king and a queen in mm-hmm. there as well and i was just i'm just interested in in the title in what it meant to you as you embarked on on making those works I was thinking about, well, okay, so I was, uh, I listened to a lot of history podcasts while I'm working, and I, when I started on that, I was listening to uh, Mike Duncan's uh, Revolutions podcast, because uh, I'd listened to his History of Rome podcast, and then when he finished with the part of, the, of Roman history he was interested in, he'd started a podcast that was a, a history of different revolutions, and he covered uh, the chain of failed uh, revolutions in the mid nineteenth century in Europe. Uh, so there were there was a whole there were, there were a couple of years there where it looked like the entire political order in Europe was going to collapse and be reformed along more uh, liberal open lines, uh, and then one by one all the revolutions were crushed. 
and uh, the existing political order managed to hold out, I suppose, more or less until World War One. And that was kind of like a really interesting historical passage because a very different late 19th and early 20th century Europe could have happened quite easily. Uh, but they managed to successfully put it down. And uh, at the time that I started, that I was listening to that, it was in the aftermath of a sort of like a crisis of public confidence in the legitimacy of government in uh, in Europe and America in like around 2015 or so. So, you know, that was like the period where there was a lot of upheaval, like there was Brexit, there was Trump, there were a lot of a lot of mass movements offering answers to political problems that were outside of the existing political paradigm. And that obviously was, you could tell from the responses that it was very threatening to the entrenched political order. And there were, uh, you know, crackdowns in, uh, in response to it. And it seemed like we were entering into an age of unrest and turbulence, uh, which I don't think has quite ended. I think that we're in it now. Um, but, uh, so when I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about the journey of some generic individual through such a, a period of, um, of transformation. And there are two male figures among that group of paintings. Uh, so there's, uh, there's one that's like a young male nude holding a fasces and facing a tower. Uh, which suggests some kind of uh, rebellion against an order, uh, but the character of the order and the character of the rebellion remain ambiguous. And there is another figure, a stooped older man, quite tall, standing alone uh, on a beach facing out to sea uh, and looking at the shore in front of him. And I imagined those as the same person at different points in his life, and there's a third painting uh, called His Mother as He Remembers Her uh, that's a little baby uh, grabbing his mother's cheek. And, um, and that was him at the beginning. And so the entire body of paintings was a sort of uh, very loose biography of someone moving through uh, this age of change and their ambivalence about the nature of change and the ambiguity of what exactly had changed by the end of it. So if it has a narrative, that's the narrative. And everything else kind of fits loosely into it. Um, and uh, I don't think that anything more specific uh, can be drawn from it than that, because, I mean, it's possible, but nothing more specific went into it than that, I can tell you for sure. So um, I spent a very happy maybe nine or 10 months doing all the paintings in that show. And oh. I had, I think kind of figured out a way to paint that was somewhat similar to the drawings. I only used white and gray. It's all white and gray paint. Uh, like it, walking into the gallery before there were people in it was very weird. It looked like bright and blurry because everything <laughs> like your sense of where the darks were was off because there were no darks. Uh, all the darks were gray. Um, I had a really good time with that. I loved that, uh, that show. And that was, that was the last one that I did before the lockdowns. That was, I think, 2019, something like that. Well, I think you're definitely right. We're still in a world of turbulence. So I think the the forecast, unfortunately, seems to, to be correct with regards to the way the world is. I, I mean, I do wonder whether it's like the 
the way the news is and the way social media is and potentially for the regular person, if you walk down the street, you wouldn't feel the turbulence that seems to be in the background of all Mm -hmm. our lives. I think that's the weird thing about life is that Mm -hmm. there is so much that happens outside of your direct consciousness that Mm -hmm. you almost have no choice but to only control the very small circle that you operate within. Yeah. And it's tough to perceive the scale of it. You know, it's so big and its turning radius is so enormous that apart from certain critical moments, it's easy to think that things right now are the way things were in the past and they will continue in the future. But, you know, we've, we're going on like maybe five years now where it's impossible to say what things are like six months in the future. And that was not the case for most of my life. You know, if, if you were like in 1992, 1993 wasn't going to be all that different. Um, but if you're in 2019, 2020 is going to be different. 21 is going to be different. And we, we cannot predict the ways that they'll be different. So we are going through interesting times. Yeah, I think technology is expanding exponentially and mm-hmm. at a scary rate. I'm, I go through moments emotionally where I'm like, this is going to be amazing for us or this is going to cripple us. And I mm-hmm. cannot figure out which one it is, but all mm-hmm. I know is I'm going to be either an early adopter, I'm going to run away in the woods and live like a very simple life, and I don't know which I'm going to choose either. So it's like this, if, I don't know, it's like everything I saw as a kid in terms of what was possible is now all of a sudden becoming possible with robotics, mm-hmm. with AI, and I'm like, damn. Like, the science fiction is not so much fiction. Right. Yeah, this AI business is kind of interesting because it came out of nowhere, like, within the past year or so, and all of a sudden it's everywhere. And that's very strange. Uh, and it's the, both on, they, there's the text and there's the visual um, AI modules. And uh, I didn't know that they had made that much progress. Did you know? No. Like all of a sudden it turns up and I was like, what the hell? Like we were told that this was not possible for a very long time. And, and now, now not here. only is it possible, it's really good. And the it's ama- ubiquitous. Yeah. 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 How do you feel about it being able to generate oh, image? It's, I'm not that interested in it and I, I should be, but like I'm, I've, there have always been technological advances on visual art like my whole life, there's been something to be excited about. And when I started out, I was like, I'm going to be excited about this and that and like the next thing. And then I was like, you know what? I'm excited about pencil and paper. And I am going to leave it to other people to be excited about these things because they do not fundamentally speak to me. Um, at the point where I can plug something into my head and make a movie, then I'm interested. And AI is getting close. I, I think that I am going to live to be able to mentally generate the film that I started out wanting to make. And that's exciting to me. And when I stopped, when I stopped with film, I was like, at some point, I'll be able to just generate this virtually. And I'm going to come back and do that. Um, until then, the like massive physical apparatus of filmmaking uh, wins. I lose. I can't, I can't beat this. Um, but AI is getting really close. And I think that you're going to have some kind of a headset rig within the next 10 to 15 years where you put it on, you have a very finely tunable uh, interac- interface with the AI, and you're able to generate a photorealistic um, motion picture. 
And at that point, it will become interesting to me, but not because of its contribution to me as a visual artist, but its contribution to like my latent filmmaker side. As a visual artist, I am content with the media that uh, have been available for hundreds or thousands of years. And, um, and like, you know, the actual art being generated by AI just seems to me like the sort of overcomplicated uh, imagery from a dream you can't really remember very well. And if you could sit down and remember it, it would be weightless and pointless. I find it a little bit depressing. And it's getting better. But, like, there's, uh, there, there are two key problems with it. One of them is that uh, I go to art because I want communion with human beings. Uh, if it's not giving me that, then I don't want it. It's not giving me the, the experience that I want. Uh, that communication from one soul to another through uh, some uh, visible medium. Uh, AI only uh, does not offer anything from the other side of that equation. Uh, so I don't care how good it is. It's not giving me what I want. The sec And, you know, people are like, well, you won't be able to tell the difference between human and AI, so you'll be presented with art. Be like, okay, yeah, assault me with that when it happens, and I'll deal with it then. But, like, I'm not going to make myself crazy being like, well, you can't really tell the difference. The other thing is that AI generates too much material. Um, there's an upper limit to how much a person can integrate before it becomes overwhelming. And in that overwhelming quality, there's a sense of futility. And in the futility, there's despair. And I do not want to be confronted with one million masterpieces. I want to be confronted with 70 masterpieces that were made by human beings who, who slaved to get good at it. I don't care what AI makes. So that's, uh, I guess that's why it, it continues to feel fundamentally irrelevant to me, regardless of its output. Well, I tend to agree with you oh. that, that I, there is something, uh, and it goes back to almost the beginning where you were saying there was that people have souls and mm -hmm. there is something about someone choosing to go through the, the difficulty of creating something and there mm -hmm. is pain and suffering and there is time and there is sweat, tears, blood, whatever you need. But there is something in terms of the expense that is mm -hmm. left at the end of the process. And yeah. I think that's underrated when it, if it becomes too easy, then it almost doesn't become as valuable. And there is yeah. something to be said about that, about, hey, you really had to work hard to achieve this. You really had to become an expert in your field. You had to push your boundaries. You had to really test yourself when you thought you couldn't. Mm -hmm. That's what makes art in its essence beautiful because there is something about the process as opposed to I'm just going to imagine it and then it's there and then mm -hmm. it's like, where? what is that? I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think, I think I'd want it, but I don't think it's good for us. It takes mm -hmm. away emotion. It takes away what art truly is. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this issue came up earlier with photography and it's, it's taken photography, most of its history for photographers to be able to assert themselves in a way that says, yes, I, I am a creator because the mechanical quality of the camera made it possible to produce a beautiful image without that passion uh, to get there. 
And photographers really put a lot of work into reckoning with that and taking responsibility for the making of their work in a way that elevated it from a mechanical product into an art form. And I think that AI is like, is, represents a similar challenge, uh, but much more intensely than photography did, because AI uh, will auto-generate meaning for you. Yeah, and it's it'll be available for literally every person. Yes. Like, if yeah, you've got the internet, a- you've got AI. And especially now, it's just a race. They're mm-hmm. all racing to have the best AI. I mean, people are going to have robots in their homes at some point. I know Elon mm-hmm. Musk has talked about it. Like, it is just at that point now where I think we're forgetting what it is to be human. I think this is part of our evolution to like becoming part human, part robot, but mm-hmm. we're forgetting about the the beauty of and the flawed nature of what it is to be human and reconciling with that. I think we've stopped doing that. We're like, all right, we'll flawed instead of reconciling the flaws and learning mm-hmm. how to accept those and get better and, and go through that process. We're like, let's just fix it with, AI and technology and forget about all those problems and all those things that actually make us unique mm-hmm. and special. Yeah, I over the past few years and you know this has gone from being something that you automatically did to something you had to make a a conscious decision to do. I've put in a lot of effort to see my friends in person. Um because we have a lot of digital mediation now that makes it possible to interact with your friends without seeing them. And I uh I really like to show up and spend time with my friends. And um and I think that the reinforcement, you know, we're not solitary creatures. We become human in contact with human beings. And I think that that time that you spend with people reminds you that you're a person. And so that that partial inhumanity that you're describing, I think is uh, in part enabled by us spending too much time socializing online because the um, there's a smooth gradient between interacting with a person online to interacting with a chat bot to interacting with base machinery. And you our brains are not adapted to understand the distinctions and to maintain their sense of identity outside of direct physical contact with human beings. Uh, so I think that us, you know, tweeting at each other and posting at each other is um, is part of that syndrome that you're describing. And I think COVID had a significant impact on the push towards mm-hmm. digitization. Yes, and, and I and I and I think about kids. Honestly, a lot of kids are going through you know social anxiety, and it's because through your formative years you spent two years essentially being told people are unsafe, you can't go outside, you can't go to school, you have to mask up. And what it did to them socially really Mm -hmm. impacts them. And I think we as a society are still going to feel the impacts of the generation. I mean, as an adult, it impacted me not being able Mm -hmm. to go outside. We had one of the toughest lockdowns here in Melbourne in the world. Right. Um, But Yeah, I read about yours. Yeah, but I think... As an adult, you're a bit more equipped to to deal with difficulty and hardship. But as a kid, you need to be with your friends. You need to feel the natural social hierarchy that is at school. You need to be able to go outside, play on the playground, and be what it is to to be a kid. And 
you know, to have playgrounds roped off and have an hour a day outside, I was like, how is this good for us long term? Like, it's just going to be untenable at a point. I mean, I, th- I think that uh, in like maybe 20 years, we're going to have a generation of serial killers because they missed out on the empathy forming period of childhood. I don't think you get that back. I think that there's going to need to be some kind of, you know, mass therapy and socialization program because you're going to have a lot of asocial people who are incapable of recognizing the humanity of the people around them. I think that it is very, very dangerous what happened to those children. I agree. But I do think that conversation and art helps. I like, I, I think, you know, when you look at art, there's and it doesn't it can be any piece of art but you know if you can find a piece that moves you you kind of do get a sense of other people you do get a sense of like empathy i think that's that communion that i that i like i think of communion and identification with as um as like core elements of the experience of art and you know when you have narrative art like books or movies good movies you the that identification with allows you to lead the lives that are inside those stories and that is that is a form of of socialization that i do that when you say that art will play a role in in helping these people reassemble their shattered humanity i think that that is correct i think that they are going to be able to experience things that they were not able to experience in their lives through art and that will help bring them back to people. Uh, and so, you know, that's a hopeful take on it. Um, yeah. And uh, but I mean, I've had that experience myself. You live a million different lives in books, and you're able to have conversations in art with people who've been dead for hundreds of years. Uh, and you know, you join you join the community of human beings. It's great. So, well, that's how I felt when I read George Orwell's 1984. Mm-hmm. I, I was a teenager and I read it and it like just blew my mind. I think it, it shaped me as like what it meant to be a person in a different world. And, and it made me wonder how I would be in that world and yeah. whether the, the main character is in fact a bad person or he is as good as you're going to get in a society like that. And then I think it just takes you out of this. I don't know. It, it struck me purely because of the Machiavellian nature of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and even still, it's one of my favorite books of all time. That is a terrifying novel. Yeah, there, I read. I read that that from the moment that he started showing it to people, it, it was treated almost like it was cursed because it was so horrific. Uh, that, I mean, that's a masterpiece. That book is flawless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember getting into an argument with my English teacher at the time about mm-hmm. the 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 idea of what a hero was because my argument was, and I still believe to this day, he is the hero as in his liberation and what he tried to do, which ultimately failed was as good as you're going to get in that society. You're not going to get a Superman who's good looking, handsome, charming, you know, who's just eloquent with everything he says. That is not that society. It doesn't make sense in that world. So Mm -hmm. for him to be beaten down, old, flawed, but still to try and rise up and fight back that is he that's his version of being a hero and i think there is something to take from that for all of us that you don't have to be the archetype of a hero but you can be your version of a hero whatever that looks like 
Yes. Yes. The, the, we all have access to heroic qualities. Uh, doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Um, I always assumed that that it, he was to be taken as as a hero. Uh, the, the what's what's horrific about that book is the description of a state machinery capable of destroying a person uh, who actually has integrity and a sense of selfhood, and the way that they uh, vivisect it and uh, and reduce it to a part in their machine uh, is uh, is what is what is what makes that book so powerful that everything has been thought of and planned for. Yeah, it makes me yeah. really want to talk to him, to George Orwell. Orwell. Yeah, yeah. Makes me. Have you read it? Sorry. Makes you. No, go on. I was just going to say it just makes me want to sit in a room and just talk to him and see his perspective on the world. I mean, he's read so many, tran- created so many transformative books for mm-hmm. the world we live in. But I'm always interested in the person behind the art that they make. Yeah, that would be great if you could sit down with Orwell. It's um, he's his other books are terrific too. Um, I went through a long period as a teenager reading a lot of Orwell. Uh, the Road to Wigan Pier, Homage to Catalonia, um, Coming Up for Air, which is treated as a kind of a prequel to 1984. Uh, I did not read his journalism, uh, like his straight journalism or his essays. We had a copy of Shooting the Ele- Shooting an Elephant, which was a book of essays. Uh, that was my dad's copy, and I remember it was a green, an olive green cover, and there was a rubber band holding it together because <laughs> the spine had broken. And he was like, oh, don't read that copy. It's falling apart. And I never did read it. Uh, but uh, Orwell is great. Like, I think that, uh, I think that it's, I think that uh, teenagers should all read Orwell. He's fantastic. Agreed. It, it yeah. kind of teaches you about fighting against the machine a little bit about. Yes. Yeah. Standing yeah. up for what you believe is right. Do you have a book that sticks out for yourself? Oh, like for like uh, from Orwell or just in general? Just in general. Uh the plague by Camus is uh, formed a lot of the basis for my um, my sense of morality. Uh, Remembrance of Things Past by Proust really um, gave me a strong sense of the outer limits of um, comprehension of people in uh, people and how they interact with each other, and it's just wonderful. Um, I found the Alexandria Quartet uh, very exciting and romantic. Um, Hebdomeros by uh, Giorgio de Chirico, which is a novel by the surrealist painter. Uh, it's terrific. Uh, you know, um, I guess The Possessed by Dostoevsky about the nature of evil. Um, I mean, there's so many good books. Uh, the Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Uh, it was just a, a gorgeous portrait, sweeping portrait of the emergence of modernity uh, out of the late um, Middle Ages uh, and out of um, out of the uh, monarchical period in Europe. Uh, yeah. I... What else? Uh, Rodin on art. Rodin has it's a book of interviews with Rodin. It's amazing. Read that one as a teenager as well. I don't know. I mean. I can keep, I can keep going. <laughs> yeah, this is going to turn into a book podcast. Uh, yeah. which, to be honest, I don't mind actually talking uh-huh. talking about books. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of feel I feel myself that I'm not as in tuned to reading books as I once was, just with the mm-hmm. nature of the tech. But I have been trying more to read books and sit down and take the time to 
actually have the pages in front of me and read them as opposed to just, you know, the quick videos. I think there is, you know, the patience required gives Mm -hmm. you something at the end of it. Yeah. You know, I've got a novel out. Did you, did you come across that in your research on me? Uh, I did, but I, -hmm. I forgot the name of the novel. Uh, The Exile of Zanzibar. Um, And I've spent, I've been writing it since 2005. Uh, I, it took that long because I was learning how to write a novel for most of the time, but right. But the next one will be much quicker, but it's a, you know, it's a fantasy novel. Um, and I, you know, published it this past year and it's doing pretty well and I'm happy about that. But, um, you know, I, I really love books. So what's your next one? Do you know when you want to release the next one? I'd like to get it done in the next two to three years. And, uh, the, uh, Exile of Zanzibar was the first of a projected seven. It's an epic fantasy uh, story, and so uh, that that novel is the beginning of the story, and it has uh, many leagues to go. And uh, so I'm working on the second one, and uh, you know I'm writing it right now. I'm really enjoying it, and it's going much faster and more easily than the first one, because you know the process for the, for the individual novel is uh, for me a process of allowing life to percolate and ideas to percolate through the narrative and. Uh, make it rich and dense, and then writing it all down. And that process doesn't have to take, you know, 17 or 18 years. All of that time was spent writing a lot of art criticism in part as a means of learning to communicate through language and uh, and to learn how to have the voice of the prose in the novel. Uh, so it worked. It was just a very laborious process. Well, I'm going to have to read it because uh, I want to – I want to be on the journey of the seven book journey so I can be like, hey, have you guys read these seven books? Because I have. I'm like, I'm a fanboying right here and I can be one of the one of the people who can be like an early discoverer before, you know, you have your own chronicles. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. And, you I'm, know, you feel free to, to shoot me questions as you're reading it. I love hearing from people who are reading it. So, Oh, I will yeah. for sure. Well, Speaking of questions, I only have one more for you. I feel like I could just ask you and pepper you with questions all day because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I find your thought process and your thoughts interesting. But this is the only question that I plan on the show. Uh, it's the only question that I spent time thinking about, to be honest. Um, okay. However, if you could recommend one album that everybody should listen to at least once to get an appreciation of, what mm-hmm. would it be? Okay. Um, uh, the Capella Romana, Lost Voices of Aya Sophia. Uh, this is a, an album of uh, Byzantine church music recorded by uh, a group in a studio. But they, uh, what they did was they used um, the most cutting edge of acoustical science to create uh, an Aya Sophia filter. So it sounds like it's being sung in Hagia Sophia uh, in, you know, in Constantinople back in the day. It's gorgeous. That so beautiful. Awesome. And I can yeah. tell you, I can guarantee you, no one ever on the show has mentioned that, that piece of work. <laughs> so I, <laughs> Awesome. I'm glad I had something to say. <laughs> well, you came out really quick. I mean, the amount of people who have no idea, they're always like, oh, the the, the faces that i get um when i ask that question but yeah it came really quickly to you and yeah i love projects that people very rarely talk about i think that's the point of the question is to 
get into the mind of what stands out to people. By the end of the podcast at some point, I'm going to have hundreds, thousands of albums that you can listen back to that influenced and shaped people. That one, that one has had a big influence on me over the past few years. I really love it. Awesome. Well, speaking yeah. of influence, obviously Daniel Maidman came through. I appreciate your time. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, and as I said, I really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to know the person behind the art. Uh, for anyone who hasn't checked him out, please check him out on uh, on Instagram. You've also got your website. There's lots of works. As I said, you can see him in museums. You write. Um, but yeah, is there anything I might let you do the plugs of your own work? Um, mm-hmm. But is there anything you wanted to plug? Where can people best find you? Uh, probably your two best bets are um, at Daniel Maidman on Instagram for drawings, uh, current drawings. Um, and if you if you check my website, you'll find uh, paintings and other work. And then if you're interested in my writing, uh, go to Amazon and type in my name, Daniel Maidman, and you'll find uh, my novel, which I'm very proud of, and a book called Theseus, which I'm also very proud of, which is a book-length interview with uh, the painter Vincent Desiderio, who is a substantial philosopher of art. Uh, and we had a long, I think it's like a maybe a five-hour conversation. I was like, we got to do a book of this. We recorded it. Uh, it was for an article, but it was way more than I needed for the article. So we made a book, and it, it treats a lot of the themes that are of uh, of great interest to him, and I was fortunate enough to be his interlocutor in that uh, exploration of his ideas, and I am very proud of that book. Uh, so that's on the like, philosophy of art. We talk about uh, a lot of different painters, films, ideas, philosophers. It's really cool. Um, yeah, so those are the two books that are available. So check me out on Amazon and Instagram, I would say. I might have to do the same thing with you and ask you about your philosophies in your life. Oh, I mean, it's not, it's not so formal or organized. Um, you know, I have this, um, you know, bare minimum morality of just trying to be decent to people. Uh, and as for metaphysics, uh, you know, I fluctuate uh, between, I guess, you know, your basic Platonic and Aristotelian outlook. Although I the older I get, the more I have to admit to myself that it's, it's always been somewhat more platonic. Um, even though, uh, I talk a good Aristotelian game. So <laughs> I uh, love that, that you have a five hour conversation with someone else. And then I ask you about yours and you're like, oh, it's just one sentence. It's like, you know, <laughs> that's it. That's it. You can sum me up. And, and I don't believe you for a second. I think there are definitely way more than that, but, um, oh, yeah, yeah. As I said, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your insight into into the art that you create and your view of the world. And yeah, I think I hope that I get to speak to you again soon because yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Absolutely, anytime. This has been a delight, and it's an honor to be on here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. Please like and subscribe, and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for upcoming podcast news. Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon under Hip Hop Hustle for exclusive content and to help support the show. Bye for now.